You could have your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Nehemiah chapter 8, and you can start locating verse 10, and we'll get to there in just a minute. Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, we've been observing in the first six chapters of Nehemiah how uh, Nehemiah has had the strength to do the work of God. Uh, amazingly, in 52 days, he's able to accomplish so much to come back, even with the intense opposition that he and the people are experiencing. They are able to get the walls and the gates set, 52 days all set to go, and you would uh, surmise that that would be the end of the story at the end of chapter 6. And th- those first six chapters spend a lot of time talking about what is the, the visible difficulties and how to have strength in the Lord uh, to be able to do those works even with the visible problems that existed. And, and the back half of the book now shifts more to the spiritual restoration that needs to take place. And so the front part of it is all about how they're going to get this work done and get this accomplished. And yet, now that the walls are complete, we still have so much more that needs to be done. And we're going to see now how Nehemiah is able to have the strength to do the work of restoring the hearts of the people now that the walls are accomplished. Now, if you looked at chapter 7 real quick, it's one of those chapters that you kind of go... Okay, and moving on to chapter 8 with all the sea of names uh, that, that are listed there. Here are all the people who had made the return. Here are the people who had done the work. And uh, this is necessary in part because they are trying to determine who's going to move back into the city. Uh, Jerusalem is not a place you can live in when you don't have walls or gates or things like that. It's defenseless. And so everybody's lived outside of the city in other towns. And so chapter 7 opens with... Uh, giving us a sense of the need to bring people back into the city to build their homes there now that the city is secure. And the other very important part of what we have given in chapter 7, and if you wanted to do a whole sermon on a genealogy, which I won't do for you tonight, but if you were really excited about doing something like that, one of the big keys about this genealogy is to note that God has not forgotten nor given up on his people. That they had been taken into exile. It looked like all hope was lost. There they are in Babylonian captivity and then survive the Persians taking over. And now they've come back into the land and God has not only restored them to the land, but they can still trace their lineage so that they can have a priesthood, so that they can worship God still. That those actions can still take place with sacrifices, offerings, atonement, that all is allowed to happen. And then perhaps the most important thing is tracing who is going to be this messianic king, who is going to be the savior of the world. These things are still intact. God's promises have not been erased, even though the sins of the people have been so great. That really colors where we're going in chapter 8. And I want you to notice the end of verse 10. This is going to be one of those times when you watch a TV show or a movie and they show you the conclusion and then you have to go backward and go do all this stuff and then you go, oh, now the conclusion makes sense, but right here it's totally out of place. That's what we're doing. So don't don't be weirded out that we're, we're going backward, but we're, at, we're backward. End of chapter, uh, end of verse 10 of chapter 8. Do not be grieved for the joy of 
the Lord is your strength. And that's the title of the lesson that we have for this evening. Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, that is a phrase that perhaps if you've been in the pews long enough, you've heard before. You might even recognize it. We have songs that, that speak to that and, and you, that you can sing to that. And so one of the things that I want us to kind of stop for a moment is just to consider, well, what does that mean? I, I don't want you to be grieved because... The joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, that's a really strange thing to say on the surface when you think about it. That sounds good, but but what do you mean by that? And I'll, I'll press that a little bit further. That word strength is often translated in other places as a stronghold uh, or a fortress or a, a refuge or protection. The idea being that uh, the joy of the Lord is this fortress for your life. In fact, the updated new american standard that was just released reads that way and says the joy of the lord is, is your refuge and so what's be, being put forward for us right here is this picture that when you need strength in life the place you're supposed to be able to find it is in the joy of the lord all right well let's now we got to see how we're going to get there that's how you end the lesson now you got to back up and go, all right, well, now we got to make that all make sense. That's the big grand conclusion that uh, Nehemiah and the leaders are drawing from this. So how are we able to have strength in our lives, be strong, find this fortress and find this protection through the joy of the Lord? So let's back up to the beginning now of Nehemiah chapter 8 and start now in verse 1. It says there in verse 1, that all the people gathered as one person in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. I love that start point. It's such a great start point now. Here we are, and we have a grand assembly of all the people of Israel. They're all coming together. And what do they want Nehemiah and Ezra to do? What is their big request? We want to hear the word of the Lord. It's not that, hey, we're all here. Let's have some fun. You know, what's, what's something exciting that we can do right now? Maybe we can play some games. Maybe we can, you know, come up with some fun food to cook up right now. It's we want to hear the word of the Lord. I think it is a wonderful picture that reveals the heart of where these people are at. In fact, notice what they do. Verse 2, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square from the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I want you to just get a sense so here they come, they say, we want to hear the word of God. Ezra goes, excellent, let me go get that. They bring it on out and they start reading it. And did you notice how long they're going? It says there, from really the break of day, early morning, verse 3, all the way until midday. So you're talking about roughly five to six hours of Ezra reading the law. And the law probably would have been the book of Deuteronomy. And so here we are reading for five to six hours 
the book of Deuteronomy, and it says that all of their ears were attentive to it. And the first thing I thought when I read that was, that says a lot, not only about them, but probably as much about our conditioning for attention span, because we can probably struggle after five minutes of hearing the word of God read and, you know, lose track and where am I and wander off into space and, oh, is he still reading? Five to six straight hours he's going, just reading the law to them and going through that. And it's a beautiful picture that they desire it. Here they are standing, waiting to hear, hear the word of God. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord. The great God and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and, to, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Just imagine that as the book was opened, just this picture of the, the honor that the people have for the word of God. As Ezra rolls out the scroll, the people then stand up. And then as he begins to read, they're bowing to, to, on the ground and worship before God and proclaiming amen and amen. And notice then in verse 8, the picture they read from the, after verse 7 describes all these different Levites who were going to read. And it says in verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. And I made this point when it was noted in Ezra, and I'll note it again here in Nehemiah. To me, that's the definition of preaching right there. They opened the book. They read it clearly, and then they gave the meaning so the people could understand. There you go. It's really complicated. <laughs> and you'll notice that's what the people want. That's what they want to hear is give us the word and help us understand so that we can do what God has called us to do. And I want you to notice now after five and six hours of reading and preaching. So if I ever do a six-hour sermon, I have biblical authority right here five six hours he just is going reading and explaining the law to all the people verse 9 nehemiah who was the governor and ezra the priests and the scribe and scribe and the levites who taught the people said to all the people this day is holy to the lord your god do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the word of the law this is really fascinating so the law is being read. They're hearing the word of God there. It's being explained to them and they understand the meaning of the words. And we're told at the end of verse nine, they're crying as they just hear the message of God and they hear these words and they're understanding the teaching and they're grasping it. And what is so striking is you would think that this is a good response, right? I mean, we, we see that in other places, hearing the word of the Lord and they're moved with emotions and they're welling up with tears and they're crying over the message that they're hearing. And yet I want you to notice that repeatedly they're told not to do this. Verse nine, it says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Verse 10 and they said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, 
be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And I read that and I thought, well, what is happening here? This just seems counterintuitive. Wouldn't you think that that would be the response you would want out of the people? And yet three different verses in a row Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites are just constantly telling the people, do not grieve. And notice the two reasons that are given, that one that is stated three times in those cases. Because this day is holy to the Lord. This is a great day. This is a holy day. And so do not be grieved. And the point of our lesson, the, t- the title that we started off with, verse 10, don't be grieved. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so what I want you to do as we kind of walk through this for a minute is first I just want you to ask yourself, why? Why are they being told? Stop grieving. Stop weeping. And that these are the answers. Don't grieve. Don't weep. Because this is a day that is holy to the Lord. And because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So that's going to cause us to have to take a step back and think about this for a minute. I would imagine that undoubtedly their weeping is right. I don't believe that here what we're having is this is some sin that is being committed by the people in their hearts as they hear the word of God and are moved emotionally and are grieving over the words that they're hearing. And they're saying, no, no, don't do that. I don't think that's what's at stake here. I don't think that's the picture. But I want you to think about what has happened. They have listened to the law of Moses for five to six hours at this point, And the explanation has been given. And I want you to think about some of the things that are ultimately in the book of Deuteronomy. If you were to read through that, and you would listen to the law that was being proclaimed, here are just a few of the messages that would have been proclaimed. For example, like in chapter 7 and verse 6, the law is proclaiming that the people are all supposed to be holy to the Lord their God. And a few verses later, the Lord keeps his covenant to those who love him and keep his commands, but will repay those who hate him and then a little bit later on like in chapter 9 they would have heard words about how if you are a stubborn people before the Lord that you are provoking the Lord to wrath and then a little bit later on you would have got out to chapter 27 and chapter 28 where you would have heard all the blessings for obeying the Lord and then all the curses for disobeying the Lord and all that was going to come upon them if they disobeyed and did not do what God had called them to do. They were also told in chapter 29 how they would lose everything if they disobeyed the Lord, how they would be enslaved and not have rest. In short, when you read the book of Deuteronomy, the law is repeatedly saying, if you disobey, it's going to be a catastrophe. And the people have just come out of that. The people have just experienced all of that. They haven't kept the law. They had received the righteous judgment of God. They had been stubborn. They had provoked the Lord to anger. They had done all of those things. The whole point that I think is happening here is the very intent of the law was to be convicting. 
You were supposed to read those commands, listen to the laws of God, and not have a smile on your face. It's probably one of the reasons we don't like reading Deuteronomy. Here are all the laws, and if you do them, it will go well for you. But if you don't, it's going to be bad for you, and here's all the trouble that's going to happen, and here's the wrath of God, and here's what he's going to do, and you're going to be cast off the land, and all of that goes on. And that's what the law was supposed to do. You might remember the Apostle Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 3. No human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is not a hopeful message. (laughs) You aren't supposed to hear the law and go, yeah, I'm nailing that. I'm just crushing it, you know, A plus for me. That's why Jesus gets on people when they start asking him about what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And they start answering, yeah, I've done that. He's like, okay, we need to probe a little deeper because I think you're deluding yourself. You're not supposed to come in confrontation with the law and go smile on my face. I'm doing wonderfully. It brings the knowledge of sin. The law is not comforting. It is convicting. It's supposed to move you to tears. It's supposed to cause you to mourn over what you've done. It's supposed to cause you to be poor in spirit and wailing over what you've done. So here is all that going on. And so I believe their response in that sense is right. They have heard the law and what they're being confronted with is their absolute failure. We have catastrophically failed before God. So why... Are Ezra and Nehemiah and all the Levites running around telling everybody, so you need to stop grieving because the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's this one little great hint in the book of Deuteronomy that I think that they're probably pushing toward. And you might remember that Deuteronomy chapter 30 has something very important, which comes along and basically says, your story is not over. Even though the people have failed, that's not the end of the story. That God is not closing the book on them because of their failures and their repeated sinning. Deuteronomy goes along and proclaims that God is going to bring his sinful people back. He is going to circumcise their hearts. He's going to make them prosper once again. It even says that the Lord will take delight in them again. And so, yes, you can be grieved over your sins, but there is a huge problem because you're missing the rest of the story. That the story with God is not over and that you need to be joyful over what the rest of the story is. And you'll notice that's what they're telling them in verse 10. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. Don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Go and feast, go and have joy, go and rejoice because even though you have catastrophically failed, that's not the end of your story. Now, here's something that I think is is particularly important about that. Is that you have this picture here that coming back to chapter 8 and verse 10, the key of our, our study this evening. Is that the strength that God is giving us for our times of failure 
is in the knowledge that he hasn't left us in that condemned state. You have a God who is rescuing his people and there is supposed to be a joy in him in what he's accomplished that gives you the strength to be able to keep going. That even though you fall down flat on your face, that you hear the word of God proclaimed and you go, well, I'm nowhere near, that that's not supposed to be the end of the story. To state it another way, the gospel message is not that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true, but that's not the gospel message. And so often what happens is the period gets put right there. How many times have you, especially if you grew up in the pews, you probably heard it that way. So here's the law of God. You're a disaster. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody in the room stinks. And so we're all terrible. And then we go home. And then you come back next Sunday and you get another dose of that. And another dose and another dose. That's not what the whole message is. The gospel message is not merely that here you are and all of sin falls short of the glory of God, period. But finish the sentence. There's no period there because the next word is and. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I believe that is the essence of what is happening right here is they are under the deep conviction of their sins and they are grieving. And here they have to, the leaders have to come and say, wait, that's not the end of the story. There is more to the story. It's not go home and you're done, but God is accomplishing great things. And that is the point of what verse 10 is is getting at. When you're decimated by sin, the strength you need is seeing what is found in the joy of the Lord. That's how you're supposed to overcome. That's how you're supposed to pick up and keep going. That's how you're supposed to move on to the next day. That's what's supposed to give you the heart of repentance and to confess those sins to God because that's not the end of the story. There is joy on the other side. And I might put it then another way. You get this really interesting Declaration that's made by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And here's what I want to zero in on. Who for the joy set before him, Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, here's what I want to ask. What was the joy that was set before him? Because when you look at what it says after that, there's nothing joyful or pleasant there. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he dealt with shame. For the joy that was set before, what's the joy that is set? What is he looking at 
that is giving him the motivation to go ahead and go to the cross and endure the shame and allow sinful people to do what they did to him. Why would he allow that? And I think the whole point is that the joy that is set before him is his great desire to bring about a reconciliation with us. The joy that is set before him was so that God's wrath would not be the end of our story. That that would not be the period. The period would not fall at all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, period, we all go home. But rather, He comes so that the sentence can continue and we can be justified by grace as a gift. That is what I think is going on right here as they are running around saying, don't be grieved. Look at what God has accomplished. Yes, we failed catastrophically, but look where we are right now and God has set us up and we have our priests and we have everything in place and God is with us and he can carry us forward and it's not over for us. And I want you to notice verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. And so they moved from being crushed by sin and hearing the law to moving to great rejoicing because they understood what God's message is all about and drawing us back to him and giving us another opportunity to be able to draw closer to him and enjoy relationship with him, to be able to be the people of God. In fact, this is such a monumental moment for the people You'll notice in verse 13, it says the second day. So we're on the next day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. I am loving these people. Day one, hey, Ezra, get the law. We want to hear it. Right. Six hours. Boom. Here we go. Day two, hey, we want to study the law. Let's get together and study. And you can imagine as all the heads of families of the father's houses are being taught the law. The implication of teaching the father's houses, they're going to go teach their families. They're going to teach their clans. So here we are. Teach us the law. We're going to go teach it to them as well. And so they are excited. They are desiring to hear the word of the Lord. They are desiring it. And notice what happens. Verse 14, they found in it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Remember, we were told it was the seventh month on the first day when this all started happening. Verse 15, and they should proclaim it and publish it in all of their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees and make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves on each roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to this day that the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. 
So here they go, we need to study the word. And Ezra goes, all right, let me teach you. And they, here, you know, here they are. And they read, oh, we're supposed to keep this festival. And something staggering about verse 17. Verse 17 says that they had not done it in this fashion since the days of Joshua. That gives us an over 800 year range that has happened. It has been more than 800 years. And one of the things that I want us to consider in this, and two points I'm making tonight, first point for us, is with the people, they do not read this and go, yeah, but the law was given over 800 years ago. And so it's not relevant. It doesn't apply. That was a really long time ago. It was to a different people, different circumstances. It was a different world 800 years ago. Friends, it would have been if I would have told you in the 1300s. Was it a different world in the 1300s, in the 1200s, in the 1100s? My goodness, even 100 years ago it was a different world. Think about 800 years ago. How easy it would be to go, yeah, but that's really different back then. First thing I want you to see, the idea of restoration never has a time limit. The idea of restoration never has a time limit. That our whole goal in going to the word of God is to always go back to what it says and do what it says. And it doesn't matter how long it's been. In fact, not only had it been more than 800 years that they had kept this feast, the giving of the law would have been well past 900 years since it had been given at that point. And when the people hear the law, they don't pitch it and go, well, that's no good. That's that's not going to work for us. We're not going to follow that. But rather, they say, we need to keep everything that is written in it. I won't make a big big long point about it but we live in a time where it's easy to come to the word of God and say it's outdated it's a long time ago it was a different world to a different people and so it doesn't apply we need to update it modify it change it and you don't have Ezra or Nehemiah standing up and saying yeah you're right let's see how we need to make this word fit in their day and time we are the ones who go back in time And do exactly as it's prescribed. They hear the word and they go, it doesn't matter that it's been over 800 years since we've done it. We need to do it. We need to always be restoring our lives to what God has said. We need to always be restoring worship. We need to be restoring everything to exactly as God has prescribed. And never forget that very important principle. One other big thing that I want you to see then is that what you have pictured here is also... An amazing description of how verse 10 can be true. To not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I want you to see that this is ultimately uh, a chain for life, if I can call it that. I'm going to speak of it in two directions. Let's go in the backward direction. Here he says, you can have strength. Here's what you need for strength. Don't grieve God has given you strength. Well, how are you supposed to have that strength? Well, he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, where did that joy come from? From them hearing the word of God. The word of God was the catalyst. 
to bring that about. So if I were to put it in a forward direction, then it is our time in the word of God that's going to generate the joy in the Lord that we need, which is what's going to generate the strength that we need to be able to endure not only physical hardships and suffering and trials like we talked about this morning, but in dealing with sin and failure. When you're crushed by the weight of sin and you're mourning over your sin and you're feeling the guilt and you feel like the failure and you feel like I can't do this. Where does the strength come from? The strength comes from the joy of the Lord. That joy of the Lord comes from being in the word of God because the word of God will tell you that your story is not over. That that's not the final deal. That's why Christ has come. If you need strength, You need to look for joy in the Lord. That's the first thing I'd say is if you feel weak in faith, if you are struggling with sin, then here is the prescription that Nehemiah is providing. You need to find your joy in God. That's the place that's going to give you the strength. Strength is not going to be found anywhere else. You are not going to have strength for life in Friends and doing work and being a success and promotions and making that's not going to making money at all. That's not going to give you the strength you need. The strength you need is only going to come from finding your joy in God. And if you say, well, I don't have joy in God, then that's the very next part of the chain. Then you need more of the good news in your life. You need to hear what God is saying. That the period is not at for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that the message keeps going. That God has done something about that. To put it another way, you have in the Beatitudes as Jesus talks about blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn over their sins. And that mourning over sins is supposed to turn into a celebration about our reversed condition. That's why I always find the Lord's Supper Memorial a fascinating memorial that God gave us. Because you have in the bread that you are, Jesus saying that you are remembering my body, which everything about that seems to indicate the sacrifice, the suffering, the shame, the cross, the pain, everything that would put you at mourning and sorrow and weeping over what our sins have done. But then he takes the cup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant because without shedding of blood, there's not forgiveness of sins. Without shedding of blood, there's not a new covenant. And friends, it's this new covenant that brings us out of the sorrow into joy that we now can be justified by him, that we are not under the law of sin and death, but under this great law of grace that has been provided to us because of our of the son and savior Jesus. That's what's happening in that moment is this massive swing of emotions that look at what has happened, but look at what has happened. And that's what I believe is this chapter eight is this is how the joy of the Lord is your strength is when you are crushed by sin and you're down in, in that way to not forget that there is the rest of the story that God has come to bring you out of that so that you can enjoy eternity with him. God wants you to be strong But that strength is only found in the Lord. And God wants you to have joy. But that joy is only found in the Lord.
Don't seek it other places. It's only in the Lord. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is a glorious picture, Lord. Thank you for what we see in your love for these people. A picture of people who are devastated by their sins as they hear the condemnation of the law. And yet under the weight of that condemnation are being told to go and feast and rejoice. Because you, God, are our strength. And that you have given us the reason to have joy in the midst of all of our failure. Lord, I pray that that would strike our hearts in such a way so that we would never give up or never give in to sin, but rather would always continue forward, that we would always be so mindful that though we have failed you dramatically, repeatedly, and catastrophically, that you sent your son because you love us so much so that our story would not be over. Lord, thank you for loving us like that. Thank you for solving our sin problem. Thank you for reversing our condition. And Lord, thank you for the joy that you give to us because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing invitation song, and we invite you to come and experience the joy that is found only in Christ Jesus. To turn away from sin and to follow him with all of your heart and enjoy the mercy and grace that is found in him. Can we help you do that tonight? You can certainly let us know once you come forward while we stand.